Good morning, everyone. Uh, my name's Naga Munchetti. It's lovely to be here this morning. Um, six things you didn't know about British voters. That's the title of this panel. I think there are more than six, but we'll try to get through as much as we can, I think. Um, so as Jane said, we want this it's almost to be a quick fire round, so to speak. All of my panelists, who I'll introduce you in a moment, are going to stand up or sit here and give a presentation of about six, seven minutes. Um, insights into relevant and important aspects of the British electorate. I know some of it's been touched upon with Ranveer's session a little earlier on, and of course you've seen John and Edward in that as well. So we have John Mellon, of course, in Edward Fieldhouse, you've, you've seen already. Um, Rosalind Churrocks, lecturer at the University of Manchester. Um, Rosalind, you're going to be looking at the shift between how women are voting. Is that one of the things? Excellent. Um, and then Jeff Evans, professor and BES co-director at Nuffield College, Oxford, um, looking at the effect of Boris Johnson's leadership on leave voters, amongst other things. And then we have Jane, of course, who you're familiar with, Jane Green, professor and BES co-director, um, who's going to look at where voters think Labour stands on Brexit. That will be an insight. Um, and then we have Paula Surridge, a senior lecturer at the University of Bristol, who's going to focus on votes positions in terms of value space, particularly on the left of right positions of voters that we're more used to thinking about in terms of Brexit terms, which we cannot avoid. There's the first mention of the B word. Um, Paula, would you like to go first? Certainly. Welcome, Paula. Paula, are you going to be happy using the mic? Or? I am, yeah. Unless everyone, if you don't, if, if everyone can hear Paula without her using the mic. No, I'll use the mic. Okay. I just forgot to pick it up. And it ah. <sighs> feels a bit weird holding it in your hand while you're speaking. So I had this um, brief to try and find something surprising about the British electorate or something that you might not know about the British electorate. And my work is all around the values that the electorate hold. And I thought what I was going to say this morning probably wouldn't surprise that many people. I was hoping to maybe surprise one or two in the audience. Um, but following um, Matt's Twitter feed this morning suggests that what I might say might actually be a bit more surprising after all. So I think about voters as being positioned, ah, to your right. Yep, but all my labels have gone wrong. <laughs> they should all be labeled as um, parties, which is going to make this a lot less interesting than it should be. Um, okay, I'll improvise. So triangles on that map are leave voters and colors relate to parties. Um, they should all be labelled with, with, with labels, and they've all disappeared somehow in the transformation from me to um, the visuals. At the bottom, no, let me go back, sorry, throw me completely. Um, so this value space is defined by two sets of um, values. We're all very used to thinking about voters having economic preferences that we measure on a left-right scale. And the BES data does this wonderfully by asking people to agree or disagree with statements around about that set of values. Um, questions include things like there's one law for the rich and one law for the poor. Um, ordinary uh, working people get their fair share of the nation's wealth. And that defines that economic left-right axis. It's quite familiar to most of us. We're comfortable thinking about that. Then there is a second axis. I've labelled it here um, social liberalism, social conservatism. It gets labelled different things in different contexts and sometimes people just give up and call it the other dimension. But we'll stick with social liberalism and social conservatism for today. 
And so I try to think about groups of voters as positioned within this value space. Now, the key thing about this value space is that those two sets of values at the, at the aggregate level are uncorrelated. So you cannot predict somebody's position on one of those sets of values from their position on the other. So um, the social liberalism, social conservatism scale includes attitudes to things like wanting stiffer sentences, the death penalty, thinking children should be taught to obey authority. You can't predict what somebody thinks on that axis by knowing how they feel about nationalization or whether there's one law for the rich and one law for the poor. They are uncorrelated. So if we, and again, apologies for the fact that the labels have disappeared, um, if we look at the groups of voters there, you've got a cluster of voters um, at the bottom of that scale. Those actually are all the Remain voters, apart from the Conservative Remainers. So you've got Labour Party Remainers, Green Party Remainers, Lib Dem Remainers, and SNP Remainers, all in that same part of the scale. Then above them, you've got a triangle which indicates where the Labour Leave vote is. A little triangle above that, which is the UKIP vote in 2017, and then the, the blue triangle and um, blue circle towards the right-hand end of the poll are the two groups of conservative voters. So some things that you can see from here. The Remain parties, and if I include Labour in that for now, and Jane can tell us whether their voters really think they are or not in a moment, are all fishing in the same pool of voters. Those voters are roughly speaking towards the left of the economic left-right scale and towards the liberal end of the um, liberal conservative scale. Labour leave voters in this framework are very distant from Labour remain voters, not on what they think about economics, economics absolutely unites them, but on what they think about these other social issues. So you can see here, when Labour talks about economics, which is what it's been trying to do for the last four weeks, it can unite its voters, but as soon as things slide onto Brexit or onto those other social issues, those voters move very far away. Now here is my surprising thing in hopefully a slide that's actually labelled. Yes. This one I made the mistake though because I didn't realise until about half past 11 last night that I'd reversed left and right. So the most right-wing parties are on the left and the most left-wing parties are on the right, which was a bit hopeless to, to discover that last night. But the point I want to make here, and I think the surprising thing that hasn't perhaps the message hasn't quite got out there, is that in terms of economics, you can't distinguish a Labour Leave voter from a Labour Remain voter. More critically, you cannot distinguish a UKIP voter in 2017 from a Green Party voter in 2017 in terms of what they think about economics. UKIP voters and Green voters are equally in favour of nationalising the railways, for example. The other thing that you can see from this slide is that the two sets of conservative voters, the conservative Remain voters and the conservative Leave voters, are the most right-wing on economics. And actually, critically for understanding what is going on in this election, the conservative Remain voters are the most right-wing on economics of all. So in terms of moving from the conservative party, they've got a lot further to go in this election on economics. And that helps us to explain where we are right now. 
I've got two other slides, but if the labels have gone off those as well, they're not worth showing you. They won't make any sense at all. So instead, I'll just summarize where I think things are um, on the basis of this analysis. Economics still matters. Okay, if we look back at this slide without the labels, sorry, the conservative voters are the most right-wing voters. And actually, it's to some extent the economic views of conservative remainers that are constraining them at the moment from becoming from voting purely on the basis of their Brexit position. <clears throat> we see um, analysis of Brexit voters. Brexit voters, regardless of where the party might stand, Brexit voters are quite left-wing. They are actually much more like Labour voters in terms of their economic values than they are like Conservative voters. And what we see here is that the Conservative vote is much closer together. The Leavers and Remainers for the Conservatives are much closer together in this space than are the Leave and Remain camps of the Labour Party, which I think helps us to understand why it's been easier for the Conservatives to maintain their vote share, while the Labour Party have had a harder time holding their different fractions together. Sorry. Paula, thank you very much. And well battled with the slides. <laughs> Jane, um, so you've got the challenge. You're going to show us where voters think Labour stands on Brexit. Thank you very much. So it's have vote, how have voters made sense of Labour's Brexit position or how have voters made sense of Labour's Brexit position? Um, so, and apologies to Paula, who just did br absolutely brilliantly. I don't know what happened with your slides. So now we're all playing slide roulette. We don't know if our slides are going to appear either. Um, so let's see what happens next. Um, so what we do in the British Election Studies, we ask people to position themselves on a scale, which goes from uniting fully with the EU to protecting our independence. And that's a scale that's run for years and years and years and years so that we can see change over time. We also ask people to position the parties on the same scale. And so the respondent gets something like, well, gets this and they can place the parties from zero to 10. And so the question that I want to address here is, what, is, what have voters made of Labour's position? Now, the very first thing we did, and I should have said also that this presentation with Rose Degas, who's sitting um, over there with me, um, she's from Nuffield too. So what we've done is we've said, okay, so have voters allocated a position to Labour? So can we see whether or not our respondents are equally able to position the Labour Party as other parties? And I should have prefaced this with, we know that Labour's had a very ambiguous position. And so it's, the question is, of course, how have voters um, assigned that position to Labour? So we learnt that there weren't really more people struggling to place the Labour Party on this scale than struggling to place the Liberal Democrats on this scale, which is fascinating, perhaps because people pay a little bit less attention to what the Liberal Democrats are saying or the Liberal Democrats get less profile in terms of what they're saying. But the, these are very similar figures. So, you know, this tells us that the vast majority of our respondents have indeed placed the Labour Party on this scale. And so what I want to do is, give, using those scales, is make three points. My first point is that we have to first of all remember, when we're thinking about where voters place parties, that voters aren't in the same position. So I'm going to look at where voters place parties and then on the basis of that, which voters are closest to parties, so which voters and where do they stand? And I think that one of the tricky things about the Brexit kind of context is that we seem to dichotomize very easily. We think about Remain voters and we think about Leave voters and we forget that there's variance between Leave voters and Remain voters. And so if we look at where the Labour Remain voters are, we see that they're much more pro-European um, in terms of their position. 
and these are the Conservative Remain voters. So first of all, we see that there's not just one Remain position. The Conservative Party are much less pro-EU in their Remain position than our Labour Remain voters. If we look at Labour Leave voters, they're much more anti-integration than Labour Remain voters, and Conservative Leave voters are even more anti um, more Eurosceptic than Labour Leave voters. And so we have this interesting variance, is that's the first point. So we have to understand that Labour Remain voters and Conservative Remain voters and Labour Leave voters and, Labor and Conservative Leave voters aren't all the same in terms of this dimension. My second point is that there are some different perceptions of where the party stands. So there isn't just one party position, just like there isn't just one voter position. And um, so I thought it'd be interesting to look at Labour Remain voters and Labour Leave voters to see where they think the Labour Party is. And so this is the placement of Labour by Labour Remainers. This is the, these are averages, by the way, on that scale, of course. This is the placement of Labour by Labour Leavers. Now, you might be anticipating the kind of point here is that the Remainers are placing Labour in a more Eurosceptic position than the Labour Leavers are. And so this was um, data from after the EU um, European Parliament elections. And we also wanted to see, well, has anything changed as Labour's adapted its position, as Labour's had more, there's more salience, there's more attention on the Labour Party. Um, you know, this is a problem for Labour, clearly, that um, its Leave voters think that the Labour Party is more pro-European than its Remain voters do. And there was a little bit of movement. So this is comparing the after the EP elections with just before the, this general election campaign. And what we see there is that the Leave voters haven't really changed. The Labour Remain voters haven't really changed. And each of those voters have just made them, the Labour Party look very slightly more towards the middle of that scale, so slightly less pro-EU. Um, but there's not really very much movement, and there's still a problem for the Labour Party in terms of where its Remain voters and Leave voters think the Labour Party is, respectively. So those are the first two points. There's variance amongst voters. There's a little bit of variance in terms of where people place the party. But if we just assume that the parties, we can just take the average position of the parties, and we'll just call that the position of the parties as the electorate see it. Um, and obviously, there's um, some variance. But let's just assume that we can just say the average position of the party is where the party is in terms of the electorate as a whole. Which parties are closest to which voters? Now, we know that um, Labour Leave voters are very important in this election, but also Conservative Remain voters are very important in this election because these are the conflicted voters, if you like. So we're going to look at those. Um, so which are the parties closest to voters? Labour Remain voters are closest to where our electorate, our respondents, think the Liberal Democrats are positioned. And so this is not good news if, on the face of it if you're just thinking that people are switching on this basis. Labour Leave voters are somewhere between the Conservatives and the Brexit Party, very, very slightly closer to the Brexit Party, um, but obviously not closest to the Labour Party. Therein lies the problem for the Labour Party. Conservative Remain voters, however, are closest to the Labour Party's position. It's a funny old world, isn't it? <laughs> and Conservative Leave voters are pretty much identical to the Brexit Party's position. So they're not as close to the Conservative Party as Labour Leave voters are. And there's tiny differences between these groups on that end of the scale, by the way. Um, so, you know, the kind of question is, like, we don't just think everything's about Brexit. Um, but if you just took these results and you said, well, who should be moving where? You might think that Labour Remain voters might be going to the Liberal Democrats. Maybe Labour Leave voters will go to the Tories. And maybe um, the Labour Party would be attracting Conservative Remainers. Now, Chris very kindly, where's Chris? Chris is over there. Chris very kindly already showed you my next two slides, kind of. And he was, what he was showing was that the Conservative Party has been far more successful um, among Labour leavers than um, the Labour Party has among 
conservative Remainers, but there has been some switching between Labour Remainers and the Liberal Democrats, which would be consistent with these data. So instead of showing you yet more Sankey plots, I'll just summarize where the parties are in terms of our data, and I've said that, so it's just to reiterate the point. I'm just gonna skip over these Sankeys and just give you the punchline. Um, so you saw quite a lot of this before in Chris's presentation. I wanted to say, and very much wanted to echo what Paula said, that this is not just about Brexit. So if you think about that retention, Paula's just told us that those conservative Remainers are gonna find it very difficult to move over to the Labour Party on left-right terms. And so this could be one reason why those conservative Remainers are very loyal to the Conservative Party, according to our data. Um, not just about Brexit and it's not just about left-right. I mean, there's lots of other stuff too, and I know I'm stating the obvious, but I think it's worth remembering. Um, so Labour's Remain voters have switched in large numbers to the Lib Dems. Conservative Leave voters have not switched in large numbers to Labour. Conservatives have remained their, um, retained their Remain voters better than Labour so far, retained their Leave voters. But there was a lot of switching, and Chris made this point that um, many Leave, Labour Leave voters have gone to don't know and have gone to the Brexit party, so there's a possibility that those voters will go back to the Labour party. And one of the most interesting things that I've seen in the polls is the gradual increase in the two-party share, so people going back to the Labour party, going back to the Conservative party, perhaps. It's also possible that Conservative Leave voters will return to the Conservatives because they've gone to the Brexit party. And of course, viability at the constituency level is a key, key point here for those voters. And Labour lost more voters to Undecided. And that was a very important trend as we showed in some other work in the 2017 general election. So it's possible that some of Labour's undecided voters will go back to the Labour party. But that's kind of where Labour is in a nutshell and where the voters are on Brexit. Thank you. Thanks. My head's spinning, I'm sorry to say. Um, Jeff. Thank you. Okay, so my paper is going to be very, very short, six minutes on a very specific question. How have the Conservatives done over the last five months? So basically, we interviewed the, our respondents in June, and now we re interviewed them in November. In June, the Conservatives were, if you look at the green on the far left, in a terrible situation. They're about in the teens in their support. By November, they were well into the, into the 30s, and they'd transformed their fortunes quite dramatically. Now, no other uh, party did that apart from Labour, who in, to some degree increased their support. These are quite consistent with what we know from polls. So how is this achieved? Um, and what does it tell us about the likely outcome? So first, um, the strategy behind this is and not a secret. There's an attempt to win back Leave voters. Leave voters that they'd lost to the Brexit party. Um, secondly, they want to appeal to Labour voters in what's called the Red Wall. Those, those constituencies where there's a majority of Leave voters but um, have been Labour for many decades. Um, thirdly, they want to avoid too many defections to the Liberal Democrats amongst their residual Remain supporters. So, Let's see what they did. We should point out that this was pretty much the exact strategy that uh, Mrs. May adopted in 2017. Uh, she had a Brexit means Brexit. She had controls of immigration. She also had a direct appeal to the working class. So she adopted, just like Boris, a one-nation Toryism combined with Brexit. It's very much Disraeli meets Brexit for both of them. But it all went horribly wrong, as we know, in 2017. So can Boris do better? So there's a Sankey, a very simple one. I've kept it simple. These people who flow to the Conservatives, 
from June to November, according to whether they were leave or remain voters. The first thing you can see there, of course, is overwhelmingly the Conservatives chose, uh, retained their support from leave voters, a few from the don't knows, and a little bit more from remain. But pretty much their strategy of targeting leave voters worked well. If we look at the party basis of the transition, we can see, quite interestingly, half of the November Tories were June Brexit party voters. Quite remarkable. In a sense, they've allied the two wings of the Conservative Party together in a matter of a few months. Um, the don't knows are the only other category with any serious um, numbers in them, and that's quite messy. But the third thing to notice here the very important thing to notice is that the actual attraction of people from the Labour Party is almost non-existent. So between June and November, the Tories attracted no Labour voters, more or less. Um, so that part of their strategy doesn't seem to be working. Um, so we know that the key role that Boris played in this was probably important for making the difference between 2017 and 2019. And it's almost as though he was chosen by the party. Oh, no, sorry, I've missed one. <laughs> the Lib Dems. The mystics is not that crucial. What's the loss from the Conservatives in June to the Lib Dems in November? Hardly anybody. So that fear that the Conservatives might have had that Remain voters left as a, as a resu result of Boris taking over and going on a fairly, you know, fairly conclusive leave ticket uh, haven't been realised. They haven't lost much which is, again, reassuring to so, Boris. What I show you here is just going back to the spring. I'll show you the propensity to vote for the Brexit party in the European elections, according to how you rated the various parties, leaders. So what we've got here, Nigel Farage, obviously really important to the Brexit party, a fundamentally important charismatic leader who's transformed UKIP and Brexit. However, almost as appealing to these people and influencing the propensity to vote for the Brexit party is the views of Boris Johnson. Johnson is almost interchangeable with Farage for Brexit party voters. No other conservative leader can really get anywhere near that. So if you wanted to choose a leader who's going to steal those Brexit party votes, he's your man. That meant that by November... The link between your views of Boris Johnson's likability and your propensity to vote Tory is incredibly powerful. It's more powerful than Farage's um, link with Brexit party voting. There's a really strong link here. Now, there's lots of statistical controls we can look at to check for what's correlated with what here. But that's not going to get rid of the substance of that importance that Johnson had in this uh, transformation of their fortunes. So what else do we see change? When you actually change a, a party's strategy and aim for a different sort of voter, you can potentially realign the party's support base. You can, as it were, achieve what Disraeli wanted with his pursuit of the, uh, the, marbles and uh, the angels in marble, the working class, back in 1868. And this is what we see the Conservatives to some degree have done. Now what you can see there is in the green columns, are the situation in June this year. People with no degrees were pretty much the same, you know, likely to vote Tory as people with degrees. Almost a 50-50 split. What changed? Well, firstly, 
a dramatic increase on both sides in terms of tendency to vote Tory, as we know, but most noticeably, a very much larger growth amongst those people who don't have degrees than those people with degrees. So that the people that are appealing to a change in the composition of what means to be a Tory. This one, I think Rose did this just to wake you up to make sure that people weren't dozy because it's very bright. But what it tells us is this. Um, back in June, uh, basically, we saw, we, we saw the Tories were a little bit more non-degree than they were degree-based. By November, this was almost two to one. So the Conservative Party is not the party of the highly educated. It's the party of others by quite some substantial margin. And that's been achieved in a few months. So transitions of social basis of party choice can take decades. At least that's what people used to think prior to electoral shocks, of course, which is actually hammered on the point. These things can respond very swiftly to the stuff on offer. But if we go to the core, and this is the core of the, of the Tory strategy on the Red Wall, we look at working class people, people who feel they're working class and people who feel they're middle class. So back in, back in June, a two-to-one lead for the middle class over the working class. Not bad for the Conservatives. Give it a few months later, both increased enormously. The working class voters increased slightly more, and so the difference between the two groups wasn't that great. But this really comes out when you look at the composition of the party. In June, the Conservatives were still a bit more middle class. By November, they were very clearly more working class in the basis of their support. In five months, um, Boris and the team have aligned the Conservative Party to be more like that Disraeli in pursuit of the angels of marble quite prominently. So, oops, sorry, on. what do we conclude from this? Well, first, we do conclude that Brexit was important and Brexit destroyed the Brexit party because Boris's strategy effectively stole their voters. Nigel's semi-concession um, of defeat by not standing in 317 seats didn't help him. Um, Although the figures don't always take into account the fact you're only measuring just over 300 seats. So I think that the demise of the Brexit party has probably been a little bit exaggerated within particular seats. Um, we saw the Liberal Dem loss was really minor. They haven't lost those people. Um, um, but we saw that, in effect, uh, the Red Wall might still hold. Uh, and, and the reason for this, and I think Ed will go on about this, um, is that although those seats in the Midlands of the North may be quite Brexity, a lot of those Brexiteers have already left the, the Labour Party, and they're winning them on the basis of Remainers. So the, the, the Tories are still fishing in the waters of disaffected Brexit voting people in those constituencies. They're not gnawing into the core Labour support base there. And, and the difference between aggregate constituency stats and individual stats will be focused by uh, Ed shortly. Thanks very much. Thank you, Jeff. Rosalind. Um, so I'm going to talk about uh, gender gaps in recent uh, British elections, kind of putting it in long-term perspective, thinking about gender gaps have changed, and then looking ahead, thank you, um, to 
uh, what this means for 2019. Um, so these are the gender gaps in uh, support for the Conservatives and Labour um, in all previous elections going back to 1964 using um, the British election studies um, post-election face-to-face data. Uh, and positive numbers throughout my presentation mean that um, women are more likely to vote for the party and negative numbers uh, mean that men are more likely to vote for the party. So you can see from this graph that um, for most elections since the 1960s, and this was actually true even prior to the 1960s, um, women have been more likely to vote for the Conservative Party, um, and men have been more likely to vote uh, for the Labour Party. Um, but you can also see that this changed quite a lot um, in the most recent election. So if we look at 2015, women were both more likely to vote for the Conservatives and more likely to vote for Labour uh, in comparison to men, and this is partly to do with um, UKIP taking men's votes away. Um, but then we really see a big shift in 2017 where the pattern completely reverses. So in 2017, women were more likely to vote for the Labour Party, men were more likely to vote for the Conservative Party, and this is completely in the opposite direction to most elections um, in the post-war period in Britain. Um, so these are still quite small gender gaps. So even in 2017, you know, uh, women are about four points more supportive of Labour uh, than men and about uh, two points less supportive of the Conservatives. Um, but when we think about gender gaps and how they differ by age group, we see um, much bigger gender differences uh, emerge. So this graph shows kind of the same thing, um, the kind of gender gaps in Conservative and Labour uh, vote choice, but for under 35s in 2015 and 2017. Um, and in these two elections, what we see is that uh, women under 35 are... 10 or 12 points more supportive of Labour and 10 or 12 points uh, less supportive of Conservative than men uh, of the same age. And uh, this is, we don't see this in previous elections, so this is really something that started um, in, in 2015. Um, if we think about older age groups um, in the 2015 and 2017 um, elections, so in Labour support, there's kind of no gender gaps um, at older age groups. In 2015, Older women were more likely to vote for the Conservatives than older men, um, but older men were more likely to vote for UKIP than older women. So there wasn't kind of a gender gap on the left, but there was on the right. In 2017, there was no gender gap in either Conservative or Labour support for older voters, so all of the gender differences were concentrated um, for younger voters. So I think another way of thinking about this is that uh, in 2015 and 2017, age differences in vote choice were greater for women than they were for men. Um, and this is a little bit... Um, to do with Brexit, um, because younger women are slightly more pro-Remain than younger men, and that's part of what's going on here. But actually, um, a bigger reason for why we see these gender gaps in 2015 and 2017 is about um, men's and women's, and particularly younger men's and women's, um, perceptions of their economic and their financial situation. So younger women in these elections were much more pessimistic about their financial situation, the cost of living, the state of the NHS, and also the economy in general, than men of their age group or older men and women. Um, and we think this is why um, they were more likely to vote Labour and less likely to vote Conservative than um, men of the same age. So then looking at um, what happened in the 2017 election in particular, I think this is quite um, interesting because we've heard about uh, Labour over the campaign in 2017 kind of gaining lots of votes. So they were really successful at um, increasing their vote share across the campaign in 2017. Uh, but if we look at the um, BES campaign wave from 2017, 
we can see that they were really successful at gaining the votes of women rather than men. So there's a slight increase um, in Labour vote share amongst men. This is the middle um, panel of this graph. There is a much bigger increase in Labour vote share um, amongst women in the 2017 campaign. So the 2017 Labour campaign seemed to be really successful at converting women uh, to supporting the Labour Party. And if I showed you this broken down by age, um, you would see an increase in labour support for uh, women of all age groups, but it would be particularly concentrated uh, for uh, younger age groups. Um, to the extent that I think for women under the age of 25, they were 30 uh, percentage points more likely to vote for labour by the end of the campaign than they were at the beginning. And so then thinking ahead just to 2019, um, this graph shows the gender gap for the under 35s from the latest wave uh, of the British election study, which, as we've heard, I think was conducted in the beginning of November. Um, so again, we see the same pattern. So younger women are still more Labour and still less Conservative than younger men. Um, another way of thinking about this is that Labour are ahead of Conservatives by um, three percentage points in this wave among men under 35, but Labour are ahead of the Conservative by 18 percentage points amongst women of this age group. Um, if we think about older age groups, there's not really huge uh, gender gaps for older age groups. And there was some suggestion that women were more conservative and men were more likely to vote for the Brexit party in older age groups, which is kind of similar to what we saw in 2015 with UKIP. Um, but yeah, as we've kind of been talking about, we'd have to see how that bears up with the fall in the Brexit party vote share. And then just one thing to kind of end on is that in the British election study, um, data from November, as well as in most current polling, um, women are still quite undecided about who they want to vote for. So um, in this wave, one in five women said they were undecided and didn't know who they were going to vote for, uh, compared to one in 10 men. Um, and I think this is quite important, especially when we think about that increase in labour support for women uh, across the campaign in 2017. Um, so the campaign still could make quite a difference to the extent to which we see uh, gender differences in vote choice at the 2019 election. Thank you. Rosalind, thank you. <laughs> Edward. Okay, so we're back to Labour and Brexit. Um, this is about Labour's Brexit dilemma, and there is a dilemma. The dilemma is that, um, as some of you will, most of you will be aware, is that um, the majority of Labour MPs represent constituencies with a Leave majority. On the other hand, in 2017, 68% of um, Labour voters had voted Remain in 2016. So it depends what you, which way you believe. Now, if we look at a little more detail, back at the 2017 result, um, Labour actually um, won... 60% um, of Labour voters were Remain in 2016, even in um, Leave seats. So that's seats with a, a Leave majority. So even in 2017, even in um, Leave areas, um, most Labour voters were Remain voters. So this suggests that um, just because Labour won Leave, uh, leave seats doesn't mean that Leave, leave um, voters voted Labour. So how does it look now? That's the question. Um, now, this chart basically breaks down potential Labour voters' Brexit preferences by the type of seat. Now, we use potential Labour voters because we're not just interested in who voted Labour in 2017. We're actually interested in who might vote Labour. So, potential Labour voter is, def is defined as somebody who voted 
sorry, somebody who scored Labour at least five out of ten on, um, on, the, on the like scale. That is, how much do you like Labour? This turns out to be quite a good break point because that's where um, there's a, quite a big jump in the proportion who actually vote Labour um, in the previous election. Um, and also, it, mean, it, it, it gives about 50% of the electorate as being potential Labour voters. So they'd have, they'd have to do pretty well in, amongst those potential Labour voters to, to, to win a majority. They'd have to be getting kind of four-fifths to do as well as even as last time. So that's what a potential Labour voter is. And now these are now broken down by um, the type of seat. So we're looking separately at leave seats, remain seats, and then all seats, but we're also breaking them down by Labour held and um, others. Um, so the gold, the gold colours represent remain and the blue colours represent leave. And what we see is that if you look at all seats, um, something like 71% of um, potential Labour voters in the most recent wave of the BES were, um, said they would vote remain if there was another referendum. And only 21% said they'd vote leave. So clearly there's a big Labour is still a remain party in that sense. Now if we look at specifically at leave areas, that's places that voted leave in, um, in 2016, that's the left-hand chart, the pattern pretty much holds. Even in those seats with a leave majority, 66% said they'd vote remain. 66% of potential Labour voters said they'd vote Remain. And only 25 said they'd vote Leave. The rest would be, um, the rest said they wouldn't vote or they don't know. So clearly, um, wherever you look, um, whether it's in Leave seats or Remain seats, um, Labour vote is predominantly made up of Remainers. And I did also look at strong Leave seats. That's seats with um, at least 60% um, um, leave vote in 2016, and the pattern still hold, holds 64 to 28 in favour of in favour of Remain amongst Leave voters. Now, just because Labour is equally Remain everywhere doesn't mean that they're equally good at predict, picking up um, Remain votes, because obviously there's more than one Remain party, and the Remain vote is fragmented. This this chart basically plots um, the percentage of the electorate. Um, intending to vote um, Labour um, by the percentage leave vote in the referendum and, the, and also the um, individual um, um, EU vote intention. So the right-hand side is, um, is leavers, and you see they're equally unlikely to um, vote Labour wherever they are, regardless of the percentage leave vote in the area, whereas Remainers are actually more likely to vote for um, Labour in leave areas. So that's Remainers are more likely to vote Labour in leave areas. And that partly reflects the fact that they're just, the Labour Party just stronger in those areas more generally. Um, but that does suggest there may be different amounts of untapped support in different types of area. So in this slide, um, I look at the um, untapped support, uh, untapped potential Labour voters. That is those potential Labour voters I defined earlier who didn't intend to vote Labour in the recent um, British election study. So this is untapped potential. So if you think that around half of the electorate was classed as potential Labour voters, <coughs> only around half of those potential Labour voters actually said they'd vote Labour. And these are the ones 
that didn't. These are the ones that aren't going to vote Labour. Now, so if you think about these as the potential pool of untapped supporters, now the right-hand side looks at all seats. Most untapped support for Labour are Remainers, 66 in favour uh, compared to 29% Leavers. But even when you look at even when you look at leave areas on the left, remain areas are in the middle, but leave areas on the left, most untapped Labour support are actually Remainers, even in leave seats. So going back to Labour's strategy, as people were discussing earlier, it does suggest that they need to be reaching out to the, those Remainers who aren't voting for them, not just reaching out for, for the um, leave, leave voters. Now, just on a final note, because um, somebody asked me this question yesterday, so what else was it about these people? Surely it wasn't just their Brexit preferences that define these untapped potential Labour supporters, and that's quite right. They, it, uh, um, it isn't just... They're, they're not only different on Brexit, they're also different on other issues as well. And as I mentioned this morning, um, they actually they don't like um, Jeremy Corbyn as much as... Um, Labour voters, they're less in favour of redistribution than Labour voters, they're more right-wing than Labour voters, and so forth. So in various ways, they are, they are simply um, less in tune with Labour. But they, as I say, they are very much um, in favour of Remain. And those, dif and those differences, those ideological differences and those ratings of Corbyn are much smaller for untapped Remain Labour voters than they are for Leave voters. The untapped Leave voters are actually really don't like Corbyn. They really are. They really are not very left-wing. They really don't like particularly like redistribution and so forth. So in many ways, it's these untapped Remain voters that are more in tune with the Labour message. Okay, that's all. Thank you, John. Okay, so I'm going to be talking about. Uh, one of the dynamics that could determine the outcome of this election, which is tactical voting, and particularly tactical voting around the leave-remain divide. So for tactical voting to happen, voters have to be willing to do it. So they have to be willing to consider other parties than the one they're currently intending to vote for. And they also need to have the information about what the tactical situation is in their seat that they can actually go through with that. Because if they don't know who is the runner-up there, who is actually potentially viable in a seat, then even if they want to tactically vote, they won't be able to. So the first part of this is the willingness to consider other parties. And here I'm using the zero to 10 scales, which are how likely is it you would ever vote for each of the parties. And so we can look at, among people who are currently intending to vote for one party, do they go and rate at least one other party reasonably high? So I'm taking six out of 10 or higher as people who might be willing to go and change parties on a tactical basis. So we break this down by seat, uh, break this down by party, sorry. So on the x-axis here, this is pre-election vote intention. So if we take the first column, that is people who, in the pre-election wave of the British election study, were planning to vote conservative. And then we're looking at what percentage of them gave a six out of 10 on likelihood to vote for other parties uh, by party. So we can see in the conservative case, very few of them are giving a six or higher to the Green Party, Labour, or the Liberal Democrats. There's not a lot of potential there for those parties among conservative intenders. However, around 40% of them do give a six out of 10 or higher to the Brexit party. So there's at least some group of current conservative intenders who if the situation was right, would consider voting for the Brexit party. And Brexit party intenders very much return the favor. If we look over at that column, 
nearly 60% of Brexit Party voters give a 6 out of 10 or higher on whatever vote for the Conservatives. So there's quite a lot of potential there for tactical voting among Brexit Party supporters for the Conservatives. And we see the same thing to a slightly lesser extent for the Remain parties as well. So we have the Labour Party, most of their voters... Sorry, around 40% of their voters give uh, 6 out of 10 or higher to Liberal Democrats and Greens, and the Lib Dems and Greens tend to give around 40% and will give a 6 out of 10 or higher to Labour in turn. So there's probably about 40% of voters who are potentially up for grabs on having overlapping preferences within their side of the Remain debate for one of the other parties. So there is a reasonable amount of potential here for voters to not go with their first choice, but another choice that's at least acceptable to them if it was tactically advantageous. So given that some voters are willing to do this, how are they going to decide which party is the tactical choice in the seat? So there's a problem here because in 2017, the Conservative Party and Labour Party took a very large share of the votes, um, the highest for many decades, in fact. But in the current opinion polls, Labour and Conservatives are a lot lower and the minor parties are doing better. So the tactical choice in 2017 is not necessarily going to be the best tactical choice in 2019. So what are voters using to decide who is viable in each seat? So we gave them a whole list of options to answer that question. Uh, this included tactical voting websites, uh, media coverage, the 2017 results, um, the Liberal Democrats bar charts, all the rest of those. But the thing that people are relying on mostly is actually the 2017 results. Even though the opinion polls are quite different to 2017 now, what voters are relying on or what they're telling us they're relying on is what the 2017 result is. And they also mentioned local election results and talking to people who live nearby them. What they're not mentioning at very high rates are tactical voting websites. Despite the huge amount of attention these have received in the media, it's only about 6% of voters who mention that as one of the reasons why they think particular parties are going to win or not. Uh, this could change during the campaign, but there's, there will have to be a lot of people suddenly visiting these websites who aren't currently for them to really swing the result. So if people are relying on the 2017 result, do they actually know what that is? That's the next question. They say they're relying on it, but in order to go and vote tactically, you need to know who won in the seat, and you also need to know who the runner-up was, so you know how to coordinate to potentially take on the incumbent. So to do this, we asked uh, the respondents in the British election study which party won in their seat in 2017 and which party came second. And again, they really need to know who the runner-up is if they want to go and take on incumbents because if you split the, split the Remain vote, for instance, between many Remain parties, you're not going to win the seat. So people are pretty good at knowing who won the seats. And this makes sense. The winner is announced with fanfare. You end up with an MP at the end of it. There's a lot of information out there about who won. And more than 60% of respondents get that right. However, if we move over to second place, it's really a lot lower. Fewer than 30% of respondents could correctly name the party that came second in their seat. And this really means that voters are going to struggle to vote tactically in a lot of seats because they just simply don't know who came second. They're not going to know how to coordinate. Now, the obvious question is, OK, well, they don't know it in every seat, but it's marginals that count, right? Um, even in marginal constituencies, fewer than half of voters, and that's on the left-hand side, the most marginal constituencies here, fewer than half of voters, even in those constituencies, could name the second-place winner correctly. And this does mean that there's at least some scope for tactical voting, but it's going to be a minority pursuit, because we only have about 40% of voters in the first place 
who are actually willing to consider other parties. And then we have less than half of voters who actually know the information required to go about it. So voters are somewhat willing to tactically vote. And they go and rely on past election results and talking to people locally as the primary ways to understand the tactical situation. But it's not clear at the moment, at least, that they have all the information required to actually go through with that. And we'll have to look whether this increases in the campaign. But as of now, it's going to be very hard for voters to tactically vote in enough numbers to swing the result. Thanks very much, John. Um, John, sorry, I have a question, actually. Have you done any research looking back at the Brexit referendum, at the EU referendum, in terms of tactical voting? Because so many said, I'm, this is a protest vote, and I didn't expect the result to turn out as possible. So I just wonder if people who have done tactical voting, maybe for the first time ever, mm -hmm. think, well, but it doesn't work because I didn't quite get the result I wanted. Uh, so in, in the EU referendum, there were a lot of people who didn't expect the result, uh, but they were primarily on the Remain side. Among Leave voters, they mostly expected Leave to win. Uh, so the, the idea that the Leave vote only happened because voters were protesting doesn't seem to mostly bear out in the data. Most people who voted for Leave wanted to leave the EU, and they actually expected to leave the EU. Uh, there, there's a small minority who are the other way, but that's also true on the Remain side. Uh, so, yeah, tactical voting in the referendum, I, I don't think was as bigger thing as people imagine necessarily. Okay, brilliant. Thank you. Take a seat. Thank you. Um, now, look, we have about half an hour, so I can ask questions or you can ask questions. It's quite easy. You have been sitting there for half an hour being quite quiet. Does anyone have any questions? Yes, yeah, so we have. So let's get this going, shall we? Microphone's just coming to over your shoulder. If you just introduce your name and if you're directing your question to someone specific or just to the whole panel. Peter Wilson-Smith from Meritious Consultants. Could I ask about, oh, I mean, I'm not sure who's the best person, but... What does the panel think about the possible impact of young people on this election result? Because we've seen a big search in voter registration. We know from the polls that the, the young people who couldn't vote in 2016, now on the electoral roll, they oppose Brexit by about seven to one. Um, are they being captured in the, in the polls? Could they have an unexpected impact on the outcome? Um, well, I mean, the answer is, they will have an impact in the sense that lots of groups will have an impact, but it's quite unlikely that um, they're going to be decisive in any particular seats or very decisive in very many seats. Um, I think one factor is um, I don't. I think it's unlikely that you'll see a huge surge in in, in turnout. Turnout tends to be lower amongst young people um, than the rest of the population and. Um, our research shows it still was in 2017, um, despite claims to the contrary, and it has been for many years. I mean, there may well be a, a little increase in turnout amongst young people, as we, we talked a little earlier about the fact that there's been some increase in registration, particularly amongst young people, although that partly um, offsets those that dropped off the register previously. Um, they, they, what is distinctive about young voters is, is that they have moved increasingly behind um, Labour, so um, in 2017, if there was a youthquake, it was a youthquake in party choice, not really in turnout. Um, but again, I think that's kind of built in already. The fact that young voters um, voted Labour last time, they need to they need to get them to um, vote in uh, to vote Labour again in large numbers, just to just to stand still, if you like. So I, I don't think they're going to cause a big shift in the 
in the in the result compared to you know any other group in the in the electorate what about the whole power and this is going to sound really ignorant but it's the kind of thing that we kind of look at on breakfast or or, or on the bbc the whole greta thunberg effect and the whole um youth activism effect and the whole idea that if there were a second referendum there's a whole wave of people now young people who didn't get to vote the first time around and so is that playing at all into any of their politics and that their their willingness to participate i don't know if anyone wants to answer that i'll start but i'll pass over if anyone's got any better ideas but um i did have a little look at the um the issues that young voters were look, naming in the recent election study uh, wave um and the environment does come up an awful lot. Um, I mean, generally, you find that the most important issue for young voters is quite similar to older voters. But lately, it's looking like um, the, the environment is surged quite a lot. Um, but, I, but as I said, I'm not sure that will end up in an increase, a, a massive increase in turnout. Any thoughts? No? OK, fine. And any other questions? Gentlemen, oh, we've got lots. I'll pass one here. You pass that one there. Thank you very much. It's Masato Kimura, Japanese journalist. My question is about Corbyn's nationalization policy. How do Labour voters see the nationalizations? Uh, new Labour and the younger generation and old Labour. We're just tossing up who's going to take that question because I don't know the answer. Um, I, I guess More the question than one can is, answer. <laughs> has, has anybody seen a leftward shift of the Labour Party over recent weeks or months? That would be a one way that we could answer. I don't know if anyone wants to put their hand up and say whether they've looked at the data. I think the answer to that is we don't know the answer. Um, do you want to say anything, Paula? No? Okay. Sorry. The... the Policies on nationalisation generally are quite popular across a big range of voters. And what you will have noticed, what you would have noticed if my labels had appeared on my chart, is that all groups of voters actually sit in that left-wing quadrant of that value space. So actually nationalisation policies are generally quite popular across a really big range of voters, including Brexit Party voters, um, Lib Dems, Greens and, and Labour Party. Um, so... There's no evidence that they're not popular, but they're popular amongst other groups as well. And some of it comes down to whether or not people believe that they can actually be delivered. Uh, we've talked about the youth vote. Can we talk about the death rate in terms of the death rate amongst conservative voters? And what, what will be the net effect of those fortunate or unfortunate deaths? Yeah, so, so I mean, it's, it's a good question, and obviously population replacement has happened for a long time, and there's been a, um, a in, in terms of explaining uh, electoral change, because uh, there's long been an age gradient in support for the Conservative Party, so they've always had to increase their vote among people who are aging in order to make up for some of their votes, voters dying off. I think to bear in mind, of course, is we're having an awful lot of elections in a very short period of time. The proportion of the electorate, even among the quite old age groups who die in a three-year period since the EU referendum, is not that high overall. Uh, and the fact that we've had four election, many electoral events in four years since 2015, um, 
means that there's been an awful lot of change happening that goes faster than population replacement can really influence at that higher rate. Uh, similarly with the young voters, you only have three years of voters coming in since the EU referendum to go and uh, boost the vote share of the Remain side, and you only have three years of uh, older leavers uh, dying. So it will have an effect on the margins, but compared to the amount of vote switching and volatility going on, it's a relatively small effect. Um, are you picking up anecdotally that people are getting fed up with the first-past-the-post system? Are you finding that, you know, when you're talking about tactical voting, are you getting anybody saying, I wish we had a PR system, wish we had a better system, then we could all be heard properly? So uh, we do track this. I've not looked specifically to see whether this has increased hugely. Uh, in 2015, there were a lot of voters for the minor parties who felt quite disenfranchised because the result was quite unproportional. Uh, in 2017, I believe that went down a bit because a lot of people voted Labour and Conservative, and then that didn't get they didn't get disenfranchised from that vote choice in the same way. I imagine since the smaller parties are doing better, voters will be feeling a bit less enthusiastic about the uh, majoritarian system again now. But uh, I would have to check the results to make sure that's the case. Hi, uh, Neil Carter, University of York. Has um, Jeremy Corbyn, to draw on a fictional um, radical pri uh, Labour Prime Minister, has Jeremy Corbyn found that by standing in the middle of the road, he's got knocked down by the traffic going in both directions? I'm sorry, I missed that. <laughs> <laughs> has Jeremy Corbyn found that by standing in the middle of the road on Brexit, he's got knocked down by the traffic going in both directions? Well, the implication of what I was showing you earlier is possibly yes, in the sense that they are doing awfully badly amongst Leave voters, and they're doing awfully badly everywhere amongst Leave voters, Leave areas and Remain areas. But the problem is, is they're not doing that great amongst um, Remain voters as well, um, and particularly in Remain areas, they're losing out to the Liberal Democrats. Um, so yeah, they are. You are right. They're, they're, as I said, um, there's a lot more potential to still to be won on the Remain side as as well as on the Leave side touched upon this <laughs> didn't you I mean you were you I did I was not befuddled but I just there were so many permutations of, of Labour remain Labour leave voters and he does seem I mean in the eyes of the media to have got himself in a bit of a muddle here no I think that's absolutely right and um the most important thing is to say you know to ask the question of why has Labour not won Conservative Remainers and I think you know Paula's research is really important there because what we're looking at is conservative remainers being much closer to the conservative party in left-right terms. And I think perhaps we underestimated the loyalty of conservative remainers to the conservative party. So when you know Boris Johnson came along, there wasn't a kind of exodus of conservative remainers when the conservative party positioned themselves in a more you know hard Brexit position. So in a sense, you know, you could look at that and say, well, Jeremy Corbyn had a potentially advantageous position amongst conservative remainers, wasn't doing something entirely not sensible, was looking at their position in terms of the Liberal Democrat shift towards the Labour Party as a potential opportunity, the conservative remainers as a potential opportunity. The fact that that hasn't worked um, you know, is, is perhaps we need to look for other reasons for that, but it, it's not necessarily a totally illogical position for, I think, for Labour to have adopted if you're just thinking about the potential for those voters from those two different camps. Thank you. Um, my question's actually because, like you've mentioned, there's been uh, numerous electoral events <laughs> recently. The issue around effectively voter apathy and people getting very 
tired of voting. And do you think that that's actually going to have an impact? Because anecdotally, I've heard from people that I am completely shocked at from middle-aged, older voters that actually are quite unlikely now to vote, and that's never happened before. Um, so one thing we have seen is turnout's been going up, consecutive election after election after election. So there is a little bit of a concern there. We don't obviously know what this particular election is going to throw up, but we can see a trend. I think well, the other important thing is to say, well, I'm not sure if it's an... Is it apathy or is it a general sense of despair? Because, you know, the options being presented to voters on both sides are very unpopular. I mean, if you look at leader ratings, there aren't popular, these aren't popular parties. And if you, I mean, not, you know, if you look in historic terms, and we also saw in 2017 a very large share for the two major parties. And so, you know, is that kind of, was that enthusiasm or was that something else? And is that likely to transfer over in this particular election when voters look at those two major party leaders in particular and see them as unpopular? Um, I'm sure my colleagues have also something to say. Yeah, yeah I was just going to add that, I mean, there's two general explanations for trends in turnout. One is that um, there is the long-term change in people's sense of duty to vote, and that's declined, and that's kind of been fairly relentless. But there's also contextual factors, so election-specific factors, and those tend to be, firstly, what's at stake in the election, and secondly, how competitive the election is. So on both those counts, um, you, we could say there's quite a lot at stake in this election because of Brexit. Um, how close is it? Well, it doesn't look that close to me on the, um, on the polls, but as, as John said, I think um, people, people do think there might, there's a possibility of a hung parliament. So on that basis, you might still expect turnout to be reasonably high. So as Jane said, there's been a bit of recovery since the early 2000s in turnout. There's no reason that it should drop back very far this time. I just wanted to add something about turnout there and about differential turnout. So we've already talked about youthquake. I don't want to go there again. But one thing I noticed in 2017 was that there was some differential turnout going on according to those value positions. And some of those voters that sit around about where the UKIP position was on that chart didn't turn out in 2017, possibly because they couldn't find a party that suited them. And I think it's possible, and, and it's something that opinion polls don't pick up before the election, it's something we only really know afterwards, that we could see that differential turnout happen again. So we could see um, some highly motivated Remain voters um, turning out in their, in their quite marginal seats, whereas we see um, perhaps ex-Labour Leave voters, ex-UKIP Leave voters, feeling that they can't find a particularly good fit amongst the parties in fairly safe seats and not turning out at all. So we might see that kind of differential turnout become quite important. Thank you. <coughs> Thank you. Uh, Tony Halmos, Policy Institute, King's College, London. Um, as we're in County Hall, which for a long time was the home of London government, and the corridors were stalked by Herbert Morrison and then Ken Livingstone, amongst others, uh, can I ask you about London in relation to the election? Uh, and also, more specifically, we're, we're sitting in Vauxhall and just across the river is the cities of London and Westminster, both, shall I say, interesting seats without getting into any detail, but they uh, epitomise the different aspects of London politics. We had a poll yesterday on London. Uh, for instance, uh, what is your take on what's happening in London? Is it, as ever, out of line with the rest of the country? Is it coming into line? What, what's happening? 
So I'd say, I mean, I'll, I'll just kick off by saying that um, the British Election Study is designed to be a representative sample of the population as a whole. So all of us are sitting there thinking, well, we don't have any databases to say something about London. So we haven't drilled down into London and seen that, you know, we don't have a representative sample of London. We have a representative sample of the country. So that's why we're all sitting here going, ooh, who's going to take that question? Um, you know, looking... Is that a failing? Well, it's, a, it's not a failing in our primary purpose. Um, so Phil Cowley and Tim Bale, who is going to be on a panel this afternoon, are running a, have been running a survey of Londoners. And uh, I'm sure, hopefully, Tim will say something very clever about London this afternoon. Yeah, hi, Rosie Seed, BBC. Um, I'm interested in don't knows, actually. Do, is there a sense that, I, anecdotally, it feels like there are so many more don't knows this time round? And is that true? And are there any kind of trends that sort of pre-exist about where those votes end up going? Shall I, shall I start off on that one? So I'm one of the strange people in the world that spends lots of time looking at don't knows in the polling. <laughs> um, and certainly up until the election was called, that was running quite high. And it, it dropped down, as we'd expect, as soon as the campaign started. There are Three groups, actually, where the don't knows have been quite high that I'd want to draw attention to. The first, as, as Rosie already, already drew attention to, was amongst uh, women voters. Until quite recently, I'm talking the last seven days, that was still running at over one in five women voters were undecided, which is a huge number of voters across the country. Um, the most recent polling I saw, well, it might have been yesterday, it might have been the day before, um, suggested that has started to drop, but it hasn't so far been particularly to the advantage of Labour as it was in 2017. So that's one to watch. The other two groups um, are kind of mirror images of, of each other, and they're those cross-pressured groups. So we've seen quite high don't knows amongst conservative Remain voters, again running at somewhere close to a fifth of that group, and um, quite high don't knows amongst Labour Leave voters as well. The problem, of course, in terms of how much effect that might have on the election is that actually both of those groups of voters are relatively small in the electorate as a whole. So although they're very undecided, and you might think, oh, yes, the Lib Dems have still got the chance to win over all these conservative Remainers, yes, but they're only a small proportion of voters um, in, in the end. Uh, thank you. Um, I was wondering, thinking about the gender gap issues, is there any evidence that the gender of party leaders or of party spokespeople more generally has any impact on uh, women's likelihood or not to vote for a party and for any other demographic groups as well? Yeah, and there's not a lot of evidence that the gender of the party leader matters that much. So, you know, it's not that women are um, much more likely to vote for a party if it's led by a woman. There are some groups of women who are very motivated to vote for, for to vote for women, and so that for small groups of women that does make a difference. But on average, it doesn't it doesn't really make a huge difference. Yeah. Uh, Henry from ITV. Um, Paul was mentioning that a lot of uh, Conservative Remain voters are f quite fiscally conservative and less likely to switch to Labour. I'm just wondering what the impact has uh, on them potentially switching to the Lib Dems, the sort of rich Remainers. Seats like Dominic Raab's, you know, could could the Lib Dems pick up a lot of those seats, or is it actually quite difficult to attract those voters across? So it's now the case in the in the polling data that sorry, I can't quite see you over the, <laughs> over the top of this. Um, in the in the polling data that the 
Liberal Democrats are winning a greater share of the Conservative Remainers than they are of the Labour Remainers. But the problem for the, Labour part, for the, for the Liberal Democrats is that the, although they're winning a greater share of the Conservative Remainers, they are themselves a much, much smaller group. And although there is some suggestion that some of those um, Conservative Remainers in certain seats are moving, there is still there for those voters because they are... Um, more economically conservative, more economically right-wing, they are really, really concerned and uh, worried about the potential of a Corbyn-led Labour government. And so I think that is still keeping some of them, some of them in the don't know pool, but also some of them, it's keeping them um, with the Conservatives. And some of the um, Lord Ashcroft polling that came out, again, yesterday, the day before, this week's a bit of a blur, um, suggested that actually those conservative remainers have become a bit more conservative over the course of the campaign rather than a bit more remainy. So they're, they're getting more worried, um, thinking that a, con a Corbyn government would be worse than leaving the European Union. So that's, that seems to have been happening over this campaign. Anyway, would you mind passing it to the gentleman in front of you and then he will pass it to you afterwards. Um, Malcolm Dean again. I've never seen a, an election covered so th thoroughly uh, on TV, on every channel, and a succession of debates. Is there any polling to show that people are better informed this time than, ever, than in previous elections? Do you mean better informed or more bored? Because <laughs> that's the alternative, isn't it? <laughs> Anyone want to take that on? Um, yeah, so, I mean, the evidence we have, although I think this is, we'll have to wait until after the election to see whether this plays out, particularly in the face-to-face -face, um, high quality probability survey we'll do. But voters do seem to be paying a little bit more attention this time, and that's been going gradually up ever since about 2014, as voters are paying more and more attention to politics. Um, it's worth bearing in mind, even though they're paying more attention, they're not necessarily feeling more satisfied with it. There's quite a lot of voter dissatisfaction whilst they're also paying more attention. Um, I think the media environment is certainly a thing people will be paying attention to. We're going to be tracking uh, everything that voters are watching during the campaign, so we'll know a lot more afterwards once we get that data in about how much media coverage and uh, the debates made a difference to voters' choices, but we don't know the answer to that yet. I wonder if, um, and, and this is something else that you'll track, I'm sure, because you won't know the impact yet, just of um, any leaders who decline interviews in the face of other interviews i just it would be quite interesting you, you can't you can't answer it but we'll, we'll see uh there's a lady behind hello yes hello i'm meredith Shevsky, journalist um it's probably for professor evans um do you, can you conclude from what from your findings that Boris Johnson was actually completely right um, when he evicted Ken Clark and the various other um, Tory moderates? Um, and in the light of that, um, you showed a graph where Boris Johnson's credibility um, on Brexit vastly grew um, over that of Theresa May. Um, why do you think that is, given that um, when there was the question at the television debate or television panel um, about whether people trusted Boris Johnson, um, basically everybody laughed. Um, you know, is there any sort of contradiction there? Um, no, not really. I think Boris has not been trusted because of his own unique biography. There's so many instances you can point to about the things he's said and done. He does have a Teflon factor, which means he escapes being criticised to the degree that many would, even despite that. 
so yeah, I, I don't, don't think that is 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 a, a big problem. As for getting rid of the the the, the Tories who don't buy into the the Brexit, well, if you're realigning the party system, it makes sense. You know, I mean, there's no point winning a majority if you've then got like. 20 or 30 people stopping you from <coughs> implementing what you want to do with that majority. So it makes, a, given that they're only targeting Leave voters effectively and they've just relied on Remain voters being too terrified of Corbyn to defect too much, and that does seem to be working. Yes, I mean, when parties realign, they kind of, if they're going to be an effective functioning unit in Parliament, they, they need to clear out those people who really shouldn't be there, according to their new definition. So it's a perfectly sensible strategy. Um, obviously, Labour has a lot more issues on that front and doesn't, isn't able to implement that same sort of thing as effectively as the Conservatives, which seem to have done it pretty well. Uh, thank you. Keith Best again, the Secretary of the European Movement. Um, I want to return to the theme that was raised just a moment ago, and that's about the, the knowledge of the electorate. Um, much of my misspent life has been spent knocking on doors or picking up the telephone to people, and I remain alarmed at the profundity of ignorance, uh, including misapplication of major policies, like you know, people thinking that the Conservatives stand for nationalisation. Well, maybe they do now. I don't. <laughs> They've moved together a little bit closer to the Labour Party on that. But um, I, I just wondered if if your survey demonstrates the cognizance of the electorate and how far people are actually voting out of ignorance rather than knowledge. I mean, the manifestos have been really quite wishy-washy and are not very detailed. Is that a good thing? Because it merely confuses people if it gets too detailed? Or is it actually ensuring that people will be voting out of very little knowledge of what the parties really stand for? Keith, do you think that lack of knowledge has changed over the years? Do you think I, people are more, or voters are more, and generally, generally interested, more ignorant now? Or do you think that because there is more, perhaps, coverage, perhaps more scrutiny, or at least highlighting, that it shows how little people... I think they're more knowledgeable about certain issues, like Brexit, for example. When something focuses the mind on something like that, then people are better informed, even in a fairly broad blunderbuss way about uh, knowing the attribution of which par party stands for what policy. Uh, I think on the other things, though, uh, issues like the NHS I mean, uh, and such like, so much of that is based upon people's perception or prejudice about that. And I think, you know, the Labour Party has always benefited from questions about the NHS because people actually believe the Labour Party stands for the NHS, when in fact, actually, the Conservatives have done a darn sight more in many respects uh, for, for the NHS. But that, pr that prejudice still survives. And that's what I mean, really, about looking at some of these other issues. Yeah, so I think, I think it's certainly true that there's a subset of voters who don't necessarily who couldn't go and name all of the party's policies. Uh, certainly if you get into the very broad details of the 260 promises or so that make up a typical manifesto, very few voters are gonna be able to get down beyond the top 15, 20 maybe. But the thing is parties actually go and coalesce around a group of policies. So people have a general sense that conservatives are right-wing economically and stand for Brexit. And they have a general sense that the Labour Party is pretty economically left-wing. And 
stands sort of, well, they're less certain about where they stand on Brexit, as we've said, but certainly they know what Labour stands for economically. And so even if they don't know every single detail, I think people can generally make reasonably rational choices on the basis that they say, I'm a fairly right-wing person. Probably, even though I don't know every detail of the policies, the Conservatives are going to be a fairly good fit for me. And if they say I'm a left-wing person, probably the Conservatives aren't as good a choice for you. So I think even though voters don't know every single detail, they often know enough that they can make at least somewhat of an informed decision. Um, yeah, I mean, I, I was late this morning because my train went and I missed it. So I filled in a voting advice app to pass the time, and I couldn't fill it in. It was too complicated. There were so many subsets of policies that I had to choose between, and they were bundled together in ways I found inconsistent between parties. Uh, yet I know I'll vote Labour, um, but the and the reasons are, are probably fairly established and very value-based. Um, so people use heuristics, basically keys of understanding where parties normally stand. They never know the full nature of policies. And there's been 50 or 60 years of research on this showing the huge heuristics like, actually, leadership, say, is that guy a nice guy, that woman a nice woman? Do I trust her? I think she'll do it. Yes. That cuts through a lot of complexity. Complexity that's often created by parties who want to fudge on things they might feel they're going to lose on. So apart from a set of um, issues that people have really powerful commitments to, and there's these special issue voters, yeah, most of the time people can't use policy listings as a very easy way of making decisions. They have to use some simplifying technique, and rightly so, because it is incredibly complicated. <laughs> I have about six minutes. I know there's a gentleman there with, with a microphone. Um, my name's Dennis O'Connor. Uh, just picking up on the question of uh, knowledge or lack of, is there any evidence to show amongst the general population their knowledge around the role of the various EU institutions? So, for example, I'm talking about the Parliament, the Commission, um, the ECJ and that as a comparison to the European Court of Human Rights and, um, and, and whether they fully understand the roles of each of those constituent bodies within the European framework. Um, what do you think? <laughs> I, so, so there's, there's various evidence from a number of different surveys. We've asked about some of these things, um, and so has the European Election Study, uh, European Social Survey, I think, has some things on this too. And as you'd expect, essentially, the more complicated, the more detailed you get about EU institutions, the fewer people really know very much about it at all. Uh, generally, the knowledge is not that high in terms of being able to say how many members there are um, and what the precise role of the bodies is. So I'd, I'd say generally knowledge is not extremely high on this topic. Naga, can I? Please. I think the UK in a changing Europe um, put out a blog or a pamphlet or a leaf or something, a report um, with some evidence that's showing that knowledge div didn't differentiate between leave and remainers. Um, so just wanted to make that clear too. Yeah. Um, but also the distinctions between the institutions, people have no idea. It's not just they don't have high knowledge, but you know, the various justice, parliament, whatever, people really don't know. They have a generalized understanding of either they like or don't like Europe. Uh, thank you. Um, what do you think will be the impact on turnout? I, I, I may have already said this, but 
I mean, maybe I did already say this, but I think that in terms of the, the turnout in this election could be affected by two particular characteristics of the election. One is the fact that there's quite a lot at stake in terms of what goes, what goes, what's going next, what's going to happen next with Brexit. The second is the extent to which the, the, the um, election is close, so people tend to vote more in competitive elections. And I think both those would suggest that, you know, it will be of the same magnitude as last time. Now, added to that, you've got to say, well, there are other factors at play, like it's in the winter, so that, you know, that could potentially knock off a couple of percentage points, because some people at the margins will um, be affected by decisions like what the weather's like and whether it's dark outside. Um, but um, I think it would be fair to say that there's no reason to expect a dramatic change in turnout at this election compared to the last two. Um, I'm going to finish with a final question. None of the panellists know that I'm, knows that I'm going to ask this. But the title of this was uh, Things You Didn't Know About British Voters. So through all the research you've done so far, I'll give you an option of answering one of these questions. What so far has surprised you the most, considering you've been in this field for quite some time? Or what do you think will be the biggest or most significant surprise? after the election. Paula. And I'll get a microphone sent your way. So I'm going to go slightly, slightly off topic, I suppose, with the most surprising, because I've looked at this data for a really long time. The most surprising thing I found after the 2017 election, um, John knows this because I've chatted to him about it before, was that it was not young people that were most in favour of the removal of tuition fees. Jeff. <laughs> I like to keep you all on your toes. Um, I sometimes do vox pops for you know various people and talk to people in the street as well as just myself. And what you notice there is the, the, the amount of um, dislike expressed about Corbyn, um, and it's quite interesting, even amongst people who've been Labour a lot, a lot of their lives. And yet, when I look at the survey data in terms of transitions from Labour to Conservatives, it's minute and non-existent in the last five months. And, and that, that is what I was most surprised at, how little inroads the Conservatives have made into those core Labour votes. Thank you. Edward? Um, I haven't really thought of this a great deal, but I, I, it's very surprising how Labour have failed to... Um, attract such a, a small proportion of um, Remain um, voters. And it is, it is a failure. And I mean, there are lots of reasons for it that Jeff alludes to. But the, for me, that's the, um, the biggest surprise. Rosalind? Um, I do wonder if the most surprising thing that we're going to find after you know, everything falls out and we've got the result of the 2019 election is that not a lot will have changed and that it will be very similar <laughs> to what happened um, in 2017. John. So, I mean, it depends on when you asked me this in relation to, but I still think actually the vast increase in volatility is fundamentally the thing that has surprised me most over the last few years, just how many voters are willing to switch now and how far away we are from a stable party system. And it, I think it took us by surprise a bit. It crept up and people talked about increases in volatility in the 1970s when it got up to maybe 20% of voters switching. And we're now at twice that, and we'd sort of taken our eye off the ball a bit until about 2015 when suddenly, oh, wow, really the majority of the electorates have switched in the last three elections. Uh, so I still find that surprising even now. Jane, you get the last word. <laughs> Thank you. Um, so I think the thing that surprised me the most was in 2015. 
And um, it was something I think we all should have spotted. And that was that we thought the Liberal Democrat collapse was going to be really, really good for Labour and that the Liberal Democrat vote was going to go to Labour. But of course, the thing I want to say is seats, because actually the Liberal Democrat collapse was very good for the Conservative Party. And it was the Conservatives gaining a majority after being in government that was surprising and against a trend and said an awful lot about our electoral system. Um, in terms of what I'll be surprised, I'm going to say something slightly flippant. Um, I'll just be surprised if nothing surprising happens. Um, <laughs> because there hasn't been an election that I've been involved in in a TV studio where we haven't got an answer that we didn't expect. I look forward to hearing it. Um, thank you so much to um, my panellists. Thank and thank you for being so engaged as well. Um, it is lunchtime. There's half an hour for lunch out there, Anand.